Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest and best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark and EVP of Industry Relations and Business Development at Lonocity, the assessment technology company. Today, we're really pleased to welcome Dylan William, who is the Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at University College London and a, a real hero in the assessment world. In a varied career, he's taught in urban public schools, directed a large-scale testing program, served a number of roles in university administration, including Dean of a School of Education. And over the last 15 years, his academic work has focused on the use of assessment to support learning, which is sometimes called formative assessment. And he now works with groups of teachers all over the world on developing formative assessment practices. Welcome, Dylan. Glad to be here. Really very pleased to have you here. So the question I tend to ask everybody is, how did you get into the world of assessment? Well, I got into the world of education by wanting to form a rock band in London and needing some money to get some money for a public address system. And I started teaching just to try to get some money. And I, after two years of doing that, I decided I was enjoying the teaching more than the music. So I gave up the music. Um, I taught for, for eight years. I then worked at Chelsea College, which then merged with King's College on a number of projects in mathematics education. And then when the government announced the statutory assessment at Key Stage 3, the SATs as they used to be called, King's were lucky to win contracts for all four subjects, English, Mathematics, Science and Technology. And so I was asked to coordinate the efforts. And so I became a kind of more generic assessment expert at that point, just through necessity. And when that work came to an end, I went back to King's and needed to finish my PhD. And I realized it would be easier for me to finish writing up what I'd been doing for the National Curriculum Assessment Program than it would be to go back to my work in mathematics education on children's logical thinking. So that's really how I became uh, involved in assessment. And I think the real joke here is that the reason I was asked to coordinate the consortium I was quite young at the time, but I could speak Welsh. And the consortium had to be working in both Welsh and English, because at that time, the Welsh education system was part of the English education system. And so uh, it's one of those things that you could never have planned. But I think I got that job because I could speak Welsh and represent the consortium in Wales. I think so many people that I speak to have gone into assessment almost by chance or whatever, but then really enjoyed it. And I know that one of the key things perhaps that you've been doing is looking at uh, in your earlier earlier career and perhaps still now looking at sort of this inside the black box and formative assessment and how formative assessment makes a big difference to people. Can you share some of your research and uh, thinking on that? Well, interestingly enough, uh, my work on formative assessment came after I was given a professorship for educational assessment. So my early work was in summative assessment. Uh, but then by just chance, uh, Paul Black was asked by uh, some people uh, who'd been working on the Beera Policy Task Group on assessment. And when that finished, they reformed themselves into the assessment reform group. So they had some funding from the Nuffield Foundation to look at how assessment might be improved. And they asked Paul Black to update two very important reviews of research that had been conducted about 10 years earlier, one by Gary Natriello and the other by Terry Crooks, about the impact of assessment processes on students. And so Paul Black and I worked on that. Paul 
was originally invited, but he said he didn't want to do it unless he had some support, so he invited me. And so we worked together on that. And I think the interesting thing that we did was we shifted the focus away from what we've been asked to do. So originally we were asked to look at the effects of assessment processes on students. Does testing demotivate students? Does it motivate them? But we actually found a whole range of research studies that looked at assessment not just as a way of measuring students' learning, but also improving it by making what teachers were doing more responsive to students' needs. So that is now how we think of formative assessment. It's, it's just having teachers getting better evidence about what's going on in students' heads so they can make better decisions about what to do next. So the, the simple equation is better evidence, better decisions, better learning. So the key benefit of formative assessment is to tell teachers what they need to teach next or what they need to reteach, that kind of thing? That kind of thing. But also, we discovered when we began to work with teachers in classrooms, you couldn't change what teachers were doing unless you also changed what students were doing. So it kind of expanded from just helping teachers get better evidence and then feedback more appropriately to students, but then empowering students as both owners of their own learning and as learning resources for one another. So it became a much more kind of organic uh, enterprise, but I think one that's quite powerful, thinking about the role of evidence in improving education. Uh, it's, it's One teacher described it very nicely. She said, formative assessment is all about making the students' voices louder and making the teachers' hearing better. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Uh, so what, what are some good practices in terms of formative assessment? I mean, what should one be doing? Well, first of all, you've got to be clear about where you want to go. So teachers need to be clear about the learning intentions of a piece of teaching. I'm not a big fan of starting off a lesson by sharing that with the students. It might be a good idea. It might not be. It might be better to start off by just asking an engaging question like, why does it take longer to cook potatoes at 220 degrees Celsius in an oven than it does at 100 degrees Celsius in a pan of boiling water? That question might be a great way of getting the students focused on what you want them to think about, and the learning objective wouldn't be helpful there. So first, the teacher needs to be clear about the learning intention, but whether you share it with the students, and if so, at what point, is a separate issue. Once the teacher is clear about where they're going, they need to collect evidence. And of course, people talk about questioning. But there's quite a lot of research that shows that questioning is often not the best way to get evidence. So making statements rather than asking questions can often be more productive. And it's also important to remember that many teachers, art teachers, music teachers, physical education teachers, don't ask questions. They observe. They notice. So it's getting evidence about student achievement. And I think the crucial thing there is asking questions that are worth asking. So rather than asking, would your weight be the same on the moon, ask, would your mass be the same on the moon? Much more profound question. And then getting information from every single student in the group rather than just the confident, articulate ones. So all student response systems. Now you can buy these electronic devices. I'm not a big fan of these because if you want to create a classroom where students feel okay about making mistakes, the last thing you should do is record every single one of them. So I'm much more in favor of things like, um, here's a multiple choice question, one finger for A, two for B, three for C, four for D, what do you think the answer is? The teacher can quickly scan the students' responses and make a decision about what to do next. The next thing about feedback, the really important thing here, the mistake that most people make about feedback is they think that the purpose of feedback is to improve the work the student has just handed in. It's not. It's to improve the student. And if we focus on the purpose of feedback as improving the learner rather than improving the work they've just submitted, 
I think more of the pieces fall into place. And then harnessing the power of peer assessment, students helping each other improve. And then finally, and I think the goal here is to allow students to become more effective as managers and owners of their own learning. So those are the five formative assessment strategies, learning intentions, eliciting evidence, feedback, students as resources for one another, and as owners of their own learning. That's the way we currently think about formative assessment. And the evidence we have now is that it's probably the most powerful focus for teacher professional development. When teachers develop their practice of classroom formative assessment, their students learn more. It doesn't cost much money. It doesn't take much teacher time. It's just highly effective about making teaching more responsive to student needs. Can you explain a bit more about the feedback thing? So I think what you're saying is when you're feeding back on anything, it's not so much getting them to understand where they went wrong or anything before, but how they can learn from and do better in future. Yeah, I mean, the feedback might tell them how to um, get do better. But the problem is, if the feedback is so detailed that it tells the students exactly what they needed to do, what they should have done differently, then the student doesn't benefit from that process. So if I say to a child in a primary school classroom, I think your story would read more effectively if you swap the second or third paragraphs around, that will improve the story, but it won't improve the learner. So I think if teachers keep a clear eye on improving the learner rather than improving the work, and then one particular technique that I found very useful is making feedback into detective work. So rather than presenting students with a list of things that were wrong, here's some things to think about. You've done 15 equations here, 10 of them are okay, five of them are wrong. You find them, you fix them. A dot in a margin every time there's something wrong on a final draft of a piece of writing. An English language teacher called Charlotte Kerrigan had a nice technique Rather than writing comments on students' work, she wrote them on strips of paper, and each group of four students got back their four essays and the four strips of paper, and their task was match the comments to the essays. The, the idea that we should frame feedback in a way that causes students to think rather than to react emotionally, that seems to me to be the, the, the key. And then, of course, we also have to work on what some researchers call recipients' processes. The only thing that matters with feedback is what students do with it. So we have to get students ready to receive feedback. And I think that's where the work of Carol Dweck is so important. Just changing students from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset on its, on its own doesn't have much impact. But it does make students more receptive to feedback. Growth mindset is a means to, to an end, not an end in itself. The idea is that if students have a fixed mindset, they're going to be threatened by feedback because it might show them they're not as smart as they thought they were. If they have a growth mindset, feedback is always welcome because you know you can get better and the feedback will help you get better quicker. So I think focusing on how the students receive the feedback can be a very powerful way of making feedback more effective. And how do you encourage people to have a growth mindset? I think one of the ways you can do it is by starting to point out to students how much progress they've made. So Carol Dweck and her colleagues say the most important word in every teacher's vocabulary is yet. When a child says, I can't do this, the teacher says, yet. Okay. And there's a nice phrase that um, they use in one of their research studies, everything is hard before it's easy. Remember how hard it was to button up your coat when you couldn't button up your coat and how easy it is now. Remember how hard it was to tie your shoelaces when you couldn't tie your shoelaces and how easy it is now. Just reminding students of the progress they've made can feed into that notion of a growth mindset. 
So I think a lot of our listeners might be working with uh, either in, in the corporate world or in universities or in other adult learning, and also sometimes in online online learning. Does the for, presumably formative assessment works there as well? I don't think anybody would pretend that online learning is as effective as face-to-face. But I think the important thing about online learning is that the formative assessment battery of techniques becomes even more important because you can't rely on those informal cues that you get when you have students in front of you. So periodically stopping and asking the students, um, here's uh, an equation, is it correct? And asking every student to vote yes or no. Asking students just to type their responses into the chat window. It's absolutely just as important in online education because we don't get the feedback that we normally expect from face-to-face interactions. We don't have good research on that area yet, but everything that we know suggests that it's even more important than it is in face-to-face teaching. So key thing, key reasons for formative assessment are to give evidence to the teacher, give evidence to the learner, and to get feedback to, to improve. I probably missed out one or two of the points there, but is that, is that a reasonable summary? Yes. I mean, I, I think that's the, the important point is teachers have to make decisions all the time about what to do next. The question is how good the evidence that is, and then feeding back to students in ways that are useful to the students in terms of advancing their learning. And that means having the students understanding feedback. So there's one very nice study by David Yeager and his colleagues where students were given one of two post-it notes with their feedback. I've made some comments so you have feedback, or I have very high expectations and I know you can reach them. That's why I've given you critical comments on your work. The students who had got that critical feedback comment were more likely to resubmit their work. So just explaining to students why they're being given feedback can actually have a huge impact in how students respond to that feedback. Interesting, interesting. So I know along, although you were a term in the UK for a lot of your career, I know you did work in the US for for a while and Mm -hmm. went went to ETS. Uh, uh, There's a lot of controversy in America at the moment around admissions testing. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that the problem with admissions testing is that people tend to adopt very kind of polarized views. So some people talk about the need for the SAT. uh, And let's face it, the SAT was a huge improvement on what went before. The SAT was adopted because the, um, the president of Harvard College wanted to see the college not being filled by sons of alumni. And originally, they started it just for the scholarship programs, but then they decided that this evidence was useful. The the problem is it's become the kind of be-all and end-all. So I I think that we're seeing that we need to be clear about how accurate this is. Flipping a coin will get you the right person amongst two people 50% of the time. If you use something like the SAT, you'll get the right person 60% of the time and you get the wrong person 40% of the time. So it gives you a bit more information, a bit more chance of making the right decision, but it doesn't actually tell you who to select and you need to be using other sources of evidence, particularly like high school performance. Um, I'm not a big fan of personal statements because we don't know who writes them. So I think the real problem is that you know, colleges are often uh, oversubscribed and they need ways of reducing the number of applicants and so they use something that has a pattern of fairness, like a standardized test, 
which makes it look okay. And I just don't think we have to say, well, is it okay? It looks okay, but you know, what are the impacts on different groups of students? And what about in the UK, uh, the A-level system here? Do you think that's uh, better or fit for purpose? Or A-levels are interesting because they work in a system which encourages early specialization. So I, I love that. When I was a, a child, I was 16, choosing my A-levels. I suddenly discovered you could do maths, further maths and physics and not do anything else for two years. And I was delighted by that. I would have been horrified by the American education system, which required me to carry on with English and a modern language. So I think there's an early specialization, which leads to higher standards at degree level. You only need three years at college for that because of that specialization. But I think there are downsides in terms of people having a very narrow focus. So for me, I think the real question the universities ought to be thinking about is, how sure are you that A-levels are the only way of identifying talent? How sure are you that this is the only way to find out who can actually benefit from going to university? Fair enough. So you're well known for your work on formative assessment, and I know that's where you spend a lot of your time. But what can you share about summative assessment and how people should do summative assessments well? Well, the first thing to say is that I think we have to be clear that formative and summative are not really very useful as descriptions of kinds of assessment, because the same assessment can be used formatively or summatively. What matters is how the information is used. So I think we should talk about formative and summative uses of assessment information. Yeah, yep, yep. The second thing is that one of the biggest problems we have in assessment um, dialogues is this idea that we want our tests to be reliable and valid. And my point is, they can't be. There's no such thing as a valid assessment because it's valid for some purposes and not others. If I have a test of arithmetic that has a very high reading demand, then if I give it to a group of fluent readers, most of the variation in scores will be caused by their differences in mathematics achievement, which is great. But if I give it to a mixed group that includes some students who can read well and some students who can't, much of the variation in scores will be caused not by differences in mathematics ability, but by differences in reading ability. So in other words, the assessment is in some some sense too big. It assesses things it shouldn't. And so the point is that that same assessment will be valid, or the conclusions you draw will be valid for one group of students and not for a different group of students. So I think there's increasing consensus amongst assessment people that validity is not a property of assessments. It's a property of the conclusions that we draw on the basis of assessment outcomes. So in some cases, the assessments are too big. Scores depend on things they shouldn't. And in some cases, the assessment is too small. Scores don't depend on things they should. So for example, if we have a science exam where we don't test practical skills, then two students with exactly equivalent academic skills, but with differing practical skills, will get the same mark because there's no practical assessment. And that's not right. The person with more practical skills should get a higher score in some sense because they actually have skills at important aspects of science. So sometimes assessments are flawed because the scores depend on things they shouldn't. Sometimes they're flawed because scores don't depend on things they should. And that's, I think, the really important way of thinking about this. You know, what conclusions can I draw? What evidence do I have that supports the conclusions I want to draw? So, so essentially, uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense, assessments need to cover all the skill areas or competence areas that you're targeting, measuring, or making a decision on. And also, they mustn't cover things that are outside the construct, like reading knowledge or computer knowledge or language knowledge or, or something like that that's not part of the construct. Right. But here's what gets really interesting. I have to ask people, 
can you assess historical thinking exclusively with multiple choice questions? And some people say yes, and some people say no. And it looks like a debate about assessment, but it's not. They're differing about what they think history is all about. If you think that history is mostly facts and dates, then you think multiple choice questions are pretty nifty because you can assess a lot of facts and dates very quickly. And you think essay questions are flawed because they depend on people's writing skill and writing speed. If, on the other hand, you think that history is about describing and explaining historical events, then you think multiple choice tests underrepresent the construct that you care, you care about, and therefore you argue for essays. That, the important point is this looks like a debate about assessment, but it's not. It's a debate about constructs. And the big point I think that I like to make is this. If you define the construct, then assessment development should be a relatively technical task in that different people should agree about whether this is an adequate assessment. If you don't define the construct, you give far too much power to the assessment folks because they can make it, they can make the assessment mean whatever they want it to mean, and it still appears to assess the construct because you haven't defined the construct with enough precision. And so really it comes down to the importance of a really adequate construct definition. And that's why often we get flawed assessments. It's not the assessments were weak, it's the construct wasn't well enough defined. So I think that's a very powerful idea. Any any thoughts about how one can define a construct well? Well, one of the ways you can do it is by getting people to um, reveal their implied constructs by sharing work with them. So one of the most powerful things I get, I do with teachers is to give them some examples of science or mathematics work and say, how good is this as science or as mathematics? And you get huge disagreement because they say, well, this is a great piece of mathematical thinking. And somebody says, well, no, no, that's not even mathematics at all, in my view. So actually just providing people with diverse ranges of samples of student work, and then getting to talk about whether they think, is, is that one better than that one, or vice versa? And then that helps you elicit those constructs. So there's a really nice example in the maths education literature. Girls tend to do less well than boys in a lot of maths tests. That's changing quite rapidly. But here's the interesting thing. If you think explaining your thinking is part of mathematics, then girls outperform boys. If you don't include that, then girls do relatively less well compared to boys because language skills don't benefit them quite so much. So again, sharing examples of mathematics that does and does not involve explanation of mathematical concepts will produce different responses from different people, different gender impacts, and that helps you understand what people's implied constructs are. Very interesting, very interesting. What about authentic assessment or practical assessment? Because I know there's a lot of move to, to, towards that in lots of different sectors. Absolutely. And it's, it's really easy to make a case for authentic assessments by contrasting them with multiple choice questions. I mean, who wants a doctor who's been trained exclusively on multiple choice questions? We want students to be able to take their knowledge and apply it in different contexts. The difficulty with that is that the research on what is sometimes called generalizability. What can you learn about somebody's general capacities from particular performance assessment they did? Turns out to be quite limited. It turns out that all the way from secondary school science all the way through to the training of doctors, the score you get on a performance task depends not on how good you are at the subject, not on how hard the task was, not even on who did the marking. It depends on whether you were lucky in the particular task you were assigned to respond to. In the literature, it's called person-task interaction. And until you get up to about six or seven authentic tasks, the person-task interaction is often the biggest feature of the score, the biggest 
a contributor to the score. And so then let's have five or six authentic tasks. But then that takes a lot of time away from teaching. So I think the really important conclusion here is it's all trade-offs. We can have more reliable assessments by narrowing the assessment onto things we can assess with multiple choice. But then we can't draw conclusions about things we didn't assess. We can have more authentic conclusions by having more robust tasks, authentic tasks, performance tasks. But then we have to be aware that on average, they might be a good assessment, but for a particular person, they might just have got lucky. It might just have been an assessment on a topic they revised last night. So I think that there's, there's always a trade-off here. There's a breadth, depth trade-off that we have to take seriously, and there's no right answer. There's never going to be a right answer. It's always going to be trade-offs. My argument is, let's make them explicitly so we know how we ended up where we are, rather than having them emerge as unintended consequences of decisions taken elsewhere. So if some of our listeners are actually using practical or performance-based testing, I think you're saying in a lot of sectors, they want to have several tasks because a single task might just be something that the person is very familiar with or lucky with or or whatever, and you shouldn't you shouldn't just have a single task, but at least three, six? Well, uh, it varies, obviously. This will probably but. vary, but the work of um, Robert Lynn and others have suggested that scores on performance tasks in, in secondary school science education, for example, don't begin to settle down until you have six different performance tasks. That's a lot of time. So I think the way forward is to have tasks that do double duty as both assessment tasks and tasks that teach students something. We can't have six authentic tasks if students don't learn anything in doing the task. It takes too much time. So I think the, the search needs to be for tasks that produce reasonably useful evidence so we can draw good conclusions about the students' capabilities, but also teach them something so that we're really assessing what the student knew at the end of the task, not what they knew at the start. Interesting, interesting. What about the future of assessment? Do you see more authentic uh, assessment, more multiple choice, more other variations? I think the strongest trend that I've seen over the last 20 to 30 years is the increasing capacity of machine scoring for non-multiple choice items. So we have multiple choice items because they're really cheap to score. They're very expensive to produce and there's lots of problems with them. Not the problems that people normally assume, I have to say. You can actually assess higher order thinking with multiple choice questions, but the danger is that they're limited. And essay questions, constructed response questions give us a, a fuller picture. There's several companies, Pearson, ETS, who've now got quite sophisticated paraphrase analyzers. So you take a concept like explained photosynthesis and you train it on, you know, a thousand or so different students' answers that have been rated by experts. And you can pretty quickly get this answering students' responses as accurately as a typical teacher would. So those kind of paraphrase analyzers are quite powerful. We could also have machines scoring student essays. In many cases now, they're as accurate as humans, which sounds impressive until you realize how inaccurate humans are and how much disagreement there is amongst humans about what a particular essay is worth. But I see over the next 20 years, maybe even 10, automated scoring of constructed response questions becoming so effective that we could actually move away from multiple choice questions as being the primary way of testing achievement and therefore, hopefully, a knock-on backwash effect into teaching where teaching, you, you, you know you're preparing students for authentic tasks, for constructed response questions, 
rather than teaching students to guess which might be the best answer in a multiple choice question. So basically, there will be very easy AI that can reliably mark student answers. Are there any sort of ethical issues there? I mean, what happens if the computer just makes a mistake and unfairly grades somebody? Well, you could argue that the computer can't make a mistake because it's doing what it's been told to do. It's not going to behave inconsistently. But I think the real problem here, and I don't know how much of a problem this is, but people want to know why the score was what it was. In the same way that one of the concerns about self-driving cars is who, who to blame if there's an accident. Now, right now, people can accurately grade portfolios of work in English or business studies without any idea of how they're doing it. So the fact is you can get people to agree without any idea about why they're agreeing. This is the point that Stephen Toulmin makes in his book, Return to Reason. You can get consensus about quality without coming to any consensus about what constitutes quality. But I think there will be a real concern about the fact that most of these models are not, in the jargon, inspectable. You can't look inside the model and say, why did that student get a B and that student get a C? The fact is that what they were trying to do was to reproduce the intuitive judgments of practitioners that we used to train the machine in the first place. And I can see that being a source of some concern because people want to know, you know, who do I complain to if I don't like the result? So, look, thank you. You've been a wonderful person to interview. Any final advice for listeners who are developing assessments, either, well, potentially both formative and summative? Well, what key thing would you like them to take away and think about as they develop or use assessments? If I can have two, it's to think about, first of all, the quality of an assessment is determined by the quality of conclusions you can draw from the results, not from the results themselves. As Lee Cronbach said, over 50 years ago. An assessment is simply a procedure for drawing inferences. The question is, what conclusions are we allowed to draw? And the second thing is, don't make any high-stakes decisions on a single source of evidence. I think if there's one thing that you could practically get all assessment people to agree on, it is the folly of trying to make a high-stakes decision on a single source of evidence. That's great. And I, I think those are, those are two really great pieces of advice. Thank you so much, Dylan, for participating with us today. And thank you also, uh, all our listeners, for listening to us today. We appreciate your support. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not follow us through your favorite listening platform? Also, please reach out to me directly at johnaquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Questionmark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars. And Dylan actually also has an excellent website if you want to learn more about his work. If you search for, for Dylan William, you'll, you'll, you'll find it. Thanks again, and please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly. Mm-hmm.